And then I was interviewing uh, someone who has an incredibly successful agency group in Nigeria. And he said to me, look, right now, there is someone at Apple at their desk crying because something is on fire. Everybody struggles. Your business will never run on its own. Every day something will go wrong. That is what it is to own a business. And I realized in that moment that nobody knows what they're doing. Nobody. I don't care if it's Barack Obama. I don't care if it's Bangote. I don't care if it's Bill Gates. They do not know what they're doing. They wake up and they are figuring it out until they go to sleep. This is Bantu, the African creative podcast. Hi, and welcome back to Bantu, the African creative podcast. I am Adetunji Paul. This is the season finale of season one of our podcast. I'd like to thank everyone who has kept up with us and everyone who might be listening in long after this is released. This episode is brought to you by Cyber for Schoolgirls. Did you know that women make up only 24% of the cybersecurity industry? Cyber for Schoolgirls is a nonprofit organization working to close that gap by enabling the next generation of female cybersecurity professionals. Visit cyberforschoolgirls.com to sign up for more information and find Cyber for Schoolgirls on LinkedIn to stay up to date. Our final interesting guest is Nena Onyochi. She's the co-founder and director of strategy of Yellow Brick Road, a renowned creative agency in Lagos, Nigeria. She's also known as the Barefoot Strategist and gives her time to mentoring and speaking about the advertising industry and the challenges of building a brand. We're going to be talking about her creative journey, her career journey, the challenges of running a business, and as usual, some African creative magic. And now, my conversation with Nena. Welcome, Nena. Thank you. Thank you, Asetisha. I'm, I'm, I'm so excited to be here. It's my first podcast, so uh, I'm a little nervous, but also excited. So That's great. Um, and yeah, I'm still not convinced I'm that interesting, but you know, <laughs> I will. We'll see. Yeah, we will. We will. Okay. So number one, please tell us, where did you grow up, Nana? So I grew up um, actually primarily in the UK. So um, my siblings uh, are are significantly older than me, like mm. 9, 10, 15 years older than me. And so by the time I was, you know, in kindergarten, they were in boarding school in the UK. Um, so my mom, you know, so we, so we lived in, in London, we lived in Manchester, lived in Oxford for a little bit. And then uh, we moved to Houston. And then I came back to Nigeria for like a year and a half. And I did like, primary one in Nigeria. Uh, <laughs> and that did not, that did not go well. <laughs> that did not go well. Um, it's like, it's, a, it's a really there. interesting story. So, uh, my aunt had a school, my mother's older sister. Yeah. And I, you know, freshly arrived from, I think it was England. I arrived at the school in Enugu, right? Mm-hmm. And the, we were in class one day and the teacher said something. I actually don't even remember what it was, but I was just like, you know, that's not how you say it. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they beat me wow. um, and reported me to the principal, who was my aunt, right? Oh, no. And so I was like, they took me to the principal. I was like, but if I didn't say anything, that you'll be teaching people this and people will think that the kids that you go to your school don't know how to speak English. <laughs> and so she sent me home, right? And then yeah. she, came, she came that evening uh, to the house and said to her sister, you got to send this kid away, man, because they will kill her in this country. <laughs> and so I went away to boarding school when I was like eight. Um, and so I went to boarding school in the UK. Uh, okay. And then after, so, uh, so, so like uh, grade school, high school, and then I, I went to college in the States uh, and worked in the States for a while. I guess I, I grew up primarily in the UK. Hmm. Um, and then uh, went to America 
But it was like, but you wake up in the UK, you have an American accent. I'm like, because, you know, my the, the base of my accent, like, because I lived in Houston before I, I went to the base of my accent is actually like Southern American. Yeah. Um, which is why I talk the way I do. And then, yeah. And then I. Surprise people everywhere. I, right. And then, yeah. And I, and I, but I'm still growing up. Right. And I don't, I don't consider myself an actual grown up yet. So I'm still, still in the process. I think I love that so much. So you went to college in United States and that was mm-hmm. UCLA. And UCLA. Famous, <laughs> famous <laughs> UCLA. What did you study at UCLA and what company did you go right after? So I did English and African studies. So my plan initially was to go to law school. Okay. Um, and so I did English and African studies, uh, which is kind of a cheat, right? Because yeah. I'm, I'm a reader and I'm an African. My mother was like, but you speak English and you're an African. I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, you know, study stuff. But I just, you know, I love literature and I was really interested um, in learning more about Africa, actually. And then I, I took the LSATs. And then mm. I realized that I had no desire to be a lawyer. Um, <laughs> I was just <laughs> like, I don't want to do that. Um, and so that was, that was probably the first time that I stepped off the path, right? Because yeah. I'm, look, I'm a youngest, I'm a youngest child, my mother's youngest child. I come from a really sort of high achieving family. And, you know, there are certain expectations, right? Like you're a lawyer, a doctor, you're, you know, something that people know what it is, right? Yeah. And, you know, I have, you know, my sisters are, you know, lawyers and academics and that's, you know, we're like, that's what we do. Um, And I just was like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) Um, And so uh, I got into Columbia and then I was like, I'm not going. And that was a big, big discussion in my family. But I was like, you can't make me go. I'm not going. <laughs> but then I had no plan, right? I was living in LA and I literally didn't know what I was going to do because I had my whole, for the last four years, I had been like, I'm going to go to law school. And you know, this is a long-winded way to tell you where I went to work after college. And so I moved to outside. So I, I stayed in Los Angeles for a year uh, and worked in the Graduate School of Education, actually, at UCLA, grant writing. Because my girlfriend, I graduated the year before my girlfriend. And so mm-hmm. I stayed on in LA for an extra year until they graduated. Yeah. And then I, uh, my cousin, uh, who is a, she's a recording artist and she was signed with Sony in Germany and she had a single out and they were trying to break her in the American market. So she was in New York for the summer, the summer of gosh, 1997 or I'm old. So I, I, I went to New York to hang out with her for the summer and okay. I, I loved it. Fell in love with New York. I hear it's beautiful. And then she was like, well, I gotta go back. And she's like, I've got to go back to Germany. And I was like, okay, I got to pay rent. <laughs> I'm going to find a place to live. Um, and luckily, and I have family in New York who put me up for a little while. But I needed a job, right? And yeah. I wanted to work in publishing because this is 1997. And we didn't yet know that publishing was not going to be a thing. <laughs> And so I, you know, I signed up for one of like these recruitment agencies and they got me a temp job. And so my first real job was in the marketing department of the jewelry division of Avon. And I don't know if you know Avon. I do know Avon. Right. And Avon is an amazing company, right? So like, you know, people know Avon skincare. But, yeah. you know, they do fashion, they do jewelry, they do all of this stuff, right? And it's, you know, it's, it's catalog, it's catalog work, right? Like you, but for me, what was really interesting is that it was the first time that I really understood forecasting, right? I didn't know anything about marketing. I don't, I don't think that I had, I really even understood that there was a job called marketing. Like I literally, it was not something that I had any idea of. But I, you know, I got this job and, and they hired me. I was supposed to be there for a week to like catalog some jewelry and up spending like six months there. And they were some of the smartest people I've ever met because their job was to figure out which of the 
kind of big high fashion runway trend would fly in middle America. And they had to have product ready and produced in time for when the trend hit like Ohio. Hmm. Right. And so they really, really understood their customer. They really, really understood trend. And it was amazing to me. I just thought this is like mind control on a mass scale. Like there's some person like sitting in New York who has to decide what, you know, moms in Ohio are going to be wearing eight months from now. And I just found it fascinating. But I still wanted to work in publishing. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Because, you know, I was, you're young and you're stupid, right? And then uh, the the headhunting agency I was working for, the the girl who was sort of the, 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 that I was working with, so I have this job. I know you're not thinking about advertising, but I have this job that I think would be great for you. So I went and literally did the worst interview ever, right? Not that it went badly, but I just did all the things that you're not supposed to do. First, I used to have, you know, when I still have the Afro, but I had some massive Afro. And I combed my hair all the way out because, you know, when I, when I was in my 20s, I was like, they got to see me as I am. I'm not, you know, and this is like 1997. Yeah. So natural hair was not a fit, right? Yeah. I go there with my massive Afro. I do no, no research. So I get there and they're like, so what do you know about us? I'm like, nothing. My headhunter said I should come. So I'm here because I was really chasing the publishing job. Right. Yeah. But the woman who interviewed me, who went on to be the head of HR, actually an amazing woman named Barbara Joel, um, recommended me for the next interview. Still do not know why to this day. Cause I literally, could not have impressed her in that interview because I was like, I don't know anything about this. I don't know anything about what you do. I don't, you know, but then she, she scheduled an interview with the VP of the group that I'd be working. I was, it was a, I was uh, interviewing for a job in business development. I interviewed with the VP of the group and we had Lisa and we had, it's not even an interview, right? We had the most raucous conversation. I was there for like an hour and a half and we just laughed hysterically. And she said to me, Margie is going to love you. And Margie Altschuler was the EVP of the group at the time. And so they called me back for an, so I just kept getting called back for interviews. Right. Yeah. And then I interviewed with Margie and I fell in love with her. So I always say that I did not go to work with McCann Erickson. I went to go work for Marjorie Altschuler. Because I was like, this is someone that I want to learn from. And, you know, Margie was, you know, she was really sweet and, you know, she liked me and she offered me the job. Uh, actually, by the time I, I, I left McCann, by the time I got back to Avon, they'd already made me an offer. And hmm. so uh, I went to work for McCann Erickson, New York as the new business coordinator, I think was my first title, which is like essentially as an admin position. And I, you know, I, I helped Margie manage uh, new business pitches for the New York office and then global, global pitches that were or had a lot of New York. Interesting, um, but I literally had no idea what advertising was. So, like, I show up the first day, and I'm like, I don't know what these people do here, right? <laughs> yeah. So I was like, but I came to work for Margie, right? and that was that was how I started in 1997, my first job in advertising. March 1997, I started at McCann. You started at McCann and Erickson. When you leave McCann. And I'm guessing this was a really, really interesting experience for you personally. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe life changing, perhaps uh, something almost prophetic that the course of your life was almost set into motion from that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you go from new business development to vice president of strategy? So I, so I worked in business development. I worked in new business for two years. And, you know, new business uh, in an agency, in a big agency, you're running a race every day. Like you're just, I mean, I used to work like 90 hours a week. It was hectic, right? And I was exhausted. I was exhausted. And it was also, in the beginning, it's really exciting. And it was great for me because, you know, in new business, you, you learn how an agency works really quickly. You get to see how all the pieces fit together. Because when you're pitching right? You see all the departments work together, right? If you start off in, in, in creative or client service, you never really, really get to see how all the pieces fit. Um, 
And I got to, to spend time with a lot of really, really senior people, a lot of really smart people from the McCann network across the world. But I was exhausted. I was exhausted. And also you do the pitches and we had a really great run. I think that we won like something like 18 pitches in a row, right? Like we, it was really great, but like you pitch this work and then you never see the client again, right? Yeah. And after a while, it's just sort of like you're on this wheel, but that it doesn't go anywhere. And I, because I was, you know, six years old, right? I was, I was, I was still a baby. And I just thought, you know, I, I need to go work maybe at a smaller agency, but I just thought, okay, I'll just, I'll just go do you new know, business development for a smaller agency. So I went to Margie and I said to him, I'm, I love you, but I'm, I'm tired. I'm exhausted. And I need, I need something different. I need a different pace. I need a life. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. You know, so I, someone has offered me a job uh, in business development at this small agency. And I mean, I, I can help them grow and I can have more of a say. And she just said to me, you know, if you want to change your life, the answer is not to go do the same thing somewhere else. And she said, you know, would you consider something else that I can? And I hadn't really thought about that, to be honest. And the only department that made sense for me was planning. And that's what it was called at the time, strategic planning. Because... I'm not nice enough to be a client service person. I just, I'm not like, I don't like people enough to do that. And I'm, you know, I'm not interesting enough to be creative, but I loved strategy and the heads of strategy at McCann at that time uh, were Suresh Nair and Nat Puccio, who are two of the smartest people I have ever met in my life. And I was like, if I was going to go anywhere, I want to go work for Nat and Suresh. Because what they do is really interesting to me. And so she talked to Nat and Suresh and they very kindly offered me a home in planning. And it was nice because, you know, McCann at the time, I think it was like 1,200 people, but the, the planning department was only 14. And, you know, McCann Erickson then was also a very white male Irish Catholic agency. Like it's not called McCann Erickson for nothing. But planning was one, Suresh was uh, one lead and Nat, who is Sicilian, who didn't really consider himself white. And so we had one of the diverse, most diverse departments in the agency. So it was also, it was just like, it was a, it was a great place to be, you know, 24. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I worked for a, an amazing lady called Stacey McKinnis, who just was magic. Right. And Stacy really from the beginning just taught me, but, but more importantly, Stacy really, she took me under her wing, right? She, Stacy would take me to every meeting. She, she got me great exposure, not just at McCann, but, you know, with, with other McCann world group agencies, you know, Stacy pushed me to present early, really helped me work on my craft. And so, you know, I think that, you know, I owe my career to, to, Mar- to Margie and, and Stacey. I don't think that I would be where I am without those two women. Yeah. And so I, I was working in planning for a couple of years and uh, I had a partner, Kevin, that I worked with a lot. And then one day we were like, look, we're not excited by what we're working on. And I think we were maybe drinking a little bit. Like we should start a practice group within the agency so we can like work on lifestyle brands because like people don't bring cool stuff to McCann. And so, you know, with the arrogance of youth, we like, you know, made a proposal okay. and sent it to the GM of the office. And he was like, sure. And we were like, oh God, now we're going to do it. Yeah. I was going to say that, that you probably, you, you did with so much, you know, yes, you thought this was going to go well. You hoped it would go well, but when it actually went well, you're like, oh shit. No, we didn't even, I don't, I think we, we did it, but we didn't really think, I didn't think anything would come of it. Cause like we were literally like what, 26. <laughs> yeah. And, but you know, to his credit, uh, the, the, the GM of the New York office was like, yeah. And gave us a bunch of money and was like, now you gotta go build this thing. And so we were like, all right, now we got to build it. Right. And so it was called tag ideation. And we built a proprietary strategy model. We 
it's interesting now, you know, there's all of these sort of like ethnographic research tools. Yeah. But at the time, like we built things that we were doing stuff that nobody was doing. Right. So like ethnographic research, is that's a big thing in marketing right now. But then people, people did focus groups and that was it. But we were like, no, we had all these things. We would like, uh, what was it? It was called switch where we would have people like, you know, trade places. We would have people like live without something that they loved for a week and like do video diaries, like all of this, like really cool and interesting stuff. Right. Cause we were just like trying things. Yeah. And I remember, uh, so McCann had like this big launch for tag ideation and they invited like, you know, is it, was it 300 or something like that of like the key clients around across the, across the network. And then Kevin and I had to put together this presentation. So now we have to like prove out, right? Like we built this model. We have to prove it works. We have to, you know, show them the research. We have to do some trend forecasting, all of this stuff. And we had this presentation. And I remember the, the, that morning, I was so scared. I threw up. <laughs> oh, no. And I remember like I'd gone and I was just the anxiety. And I came out of the bathroom and Suresh, uh, who was my boss at the time. And I said to him, look, I can't do this. I was like, I'm terrified. I cannot do this. I just, I don't think I can do this. And he was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> You'll be fine. And so we went into the room. I remember like looking out at this room of like senior clients and just thinking to myself, like, what do I know about anything? Right. And Kevin presented first. And then I had to get up and present. And to this day, I do not remember a single thing I said. Wow. Like I, it, the whole thing is a blank. I was so afraid. I literally, to this day, have no idea what I said. All I know is I got up there and for like a good, like 15 seconds, like my mind was blank. And then I started talking and then people were clapping. That's all I remember. And that's just how God works. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but, you know, but they clapped like nobody, nobody threw anything at me. Um, and then that was it. And then, you know, then we had tag and we did, we did some really cool stuff. Um, and it was really the first time that I understood that, you know, communication is not just the ad, right. We did product development. We, you know, we had solutions. We made a video game. We made a coffee table book. We did, you know, it was the first time that I, that I really understood that a lot of times the ad is not the answer in, in communications. Um, so yeah, so that was, that's how I, that's how I made VP because then they were like, yeah, we can't have these kids running a group without a title. <laughs> so uh, I made VP and I got a, a significant pay rise. Uh, and so that was nice. Wow. You know, um, I think I like this story because there is something that has been happening in the industry sort of recently and this idea of having diverse strategy teams is is now mm -hmm. you know people used to say that they used to try their best back in you know 2000s but there are very few places that were doing it well and mm -hmm. even then really realizing that sometimes the answer isn't always an ad and it's mm -hmm. not always mass market communication and there are agencies that I know of right now that are just coming to this realization and trying to now produce things other than ads um, in a world where we have needed things other than ads for a very long time. Mm. It's not always an app. Remember that time? It was everything was everything yes. was, you know, everything was an app, you know, but it's not always <laughs> an app. It's not always the same thing that you you make. And so I wonder if this is sort of a guiding strategy or guiding philosophy for you, um, especially with the way you approach your craft. Is it very sort of broad, wide, or um, has other characteristics? I, I learned strategy from, from, you know, Suresh Schneier and Nat Puccio. And the McCann system is all about effectiveness, right? Yeah. That is McCann. McCann's, McCann's glory is like, they don't win at Cannes, they win at the Effies, they win effectiveness awards. And so McCann's whole thing then was, how do we move the client's bottom line? And so from a strategic perspective, you are always looking for the answer that would move the business forward. 
you weren't looking for what would make the great ad. I tell people all the time that, you know, I went, when I went to work in advertising, I didn't know anything about advertising, like literally nothing. And yeah. I think the only thing I knew about advertising was like what I'd seen in movies. One of the, my first sort of experiences, I, I came to McCann just around the time that they won MasterCard. And so I got to see that campaign come together, the priceless campaign. Yeah. And, you know, MasterCard was like a distant number three in the credit card industry. And I saw how that campaign changed the fortunes of that business. Right. And they went from number three to number one. And I just thought, this is it. It's not, you know, the pretty pictures and yes, it's great to have the great TV ad that like, makes you cry or laugh or smile. Yeah. But the job of the work we do is to like change the fortunes of a business. And that for me was like, that's amazing. Um, actually in my, in my, in my, uh, in my interview with Margie, she always says like, the thing that, that got her, she was like, what do you, what do you, what, what appeals to you about what we do? I, was like, I don't know anything about advertising, but I think it's mind control on a mass scale. And I want, you know, the people that I will never meet will do something because some, of something that I thought. Right. And for me, that is the power of what I do is that I will have an idea and six months, one year down the line, somebody somewhere who will never know me will spend money that maybe they weren't planning to spend or will think something or do something because of something that I thought that is powerful. And so for me, it's always when I'm thinking about strategy, like what are we trying to achieve? In a strategy, I would say it's, it's really simply, it's how you get from where you are to where you want to be. And whatever it takes to get there in, you know, for, for a business where they are and where they want to be is different for every business. It's different at every time. And so the answer can't be the same because the situation is always different. The context is different. The yeah. audience is different. And so it's always about what is the, the shortest distance between A and B. Or the most, or maybe not, not sometimes not the shortest. What is the most effective distance between A and B? How am I going to unlock the sale? And sometimes it's a nap, and sometimes it's not, right? Yeah. Um, even back in the early, what the late nineties, early two thousands, understood that you have to, you have to be channel agnostic. You do. Right? You have to do what serves the idea best. So that's my that's my approach, right? It's I don't think about channel. I think about the problem I'm trying to solve, and then the channels come because they're the ones that make sense given my audience and my problem, right? That makes sense. Yeah, totally. It's important. I talk uh, to people who are close to me about um, being holistic and. It's, it's one of two things. You either decide that, you know, you're not going to really care about channel mm. and you know, you're just going to do whichever one you feel comfortable in. It's not really based on where the audience is. It's just the one I know. And mm-hmm. there's also been very, very specific about, well, this is what I want. And it's I can look at the whole, you know, all my possible channels or I could look at the things that make one particular channel work over the other. And it's probably, you know, something, I guess, that you've carried with you with Mm -hmm. the jobs that you then took on um, after McCann. So Yellow Brick Road starts somewhere around 2011, if I'm not mistaken. But you have a lot Uh of experience in Nigeria before Yellow Brick Road. What happened leading up to the point where you felt so compelled? to start your own company? So, so I moved back to Nigeria in 2004. Um, you know, and at that point I had been working in advertising for like eight or nine years or whatever it was. And I, and I, and I didn't want to work in advertising anymore, but you know, I moved back to Nigeria a, a little bit precipitously, I guess. Um, my mother passed away and I just was like, ah, packed my bags and came home. Right. No. Um, I, I, you know, even though it's worked out for me, I, I would don't make a decision. <laughs> don't make a decision like at the worst time in your life. 
Um, <laughs> but I'm just like, oh, I, can't, I can't, and I just got on a plane and packed a suit and I put all my, and I, you know, and I didn't know that I was, I put myself in storage in, in the States because I wasn't sure that I could stay. I hadn't lived in Nigeria since I was like eight years old. Right. Yeah. Um, but I really couldn't imagine going to my mother's funeral and then going back to New York. I don't know. I just was like, I can't. Right. Yeah. Um, and I came back as so I had no plan. I had no plan. I had no job, nothing. I just sort of got on a plane and came home. And, and that is, I guess, one of the, you know, my, I think my life is a, a series of uh, instances of like just great luck. Right. And, and one of the blessings of my life is I have an amazing family who are incredibly supportive. And so when I moved home, my cousin took me in. She's like, just come stay with me. And so I lived with her and her family for a year. And my other cousin kind of just took me by the hand and just started introducing me to people. And I interviewed, no lie. I, I feel like I interviewed at every company in Nigeria at the time, like everywhere, like investment banking. And like, there's nowhere that I didn't go. Wow. Nothing felt right. Cause you know, I, at the time, the idea of like institutional Nigeria was just not something that I was willing to do. I was like, I can't go like in all of the interviews that I had with like the big, big companies. It was, it just felt wrong to me. I get that. Right. I, I just I, mean, I, couldn't go, like, I couldn't go work for Shell or for, like, or for like some bank. It just was, I went and I interviewed and I'm like, I don't know, this is not for me. <laughs> um, but there was a gentleman called Chris Parks who had an experiential agency. And when I had, you know, before I moved back, even though I, mean, I moved back suddenly, but before I, before that, I had been thinking about moving back. Right. So I had this five-year plan. Uh, I want to make VP. And then I did that. I made VP. I had my own group. I did all of that. And at the end of my five-year plan, I was like, I don't know if New York is for me. Right. And, so I, and my mother was like, just come home. <laughs> just like a bag become me. And so I've been thinking about Nigeria. I had a couple of friends that had moved back at the time. And so I was talking to my cousin and he said, oh, well, there's this guy who owns, uh, it's not an advertising agency, but he's in marketing. He knows the industry well. He's a good person to talk to about what the industry is like. And there's a gentleman called Chris Parks. He's an English guy, actually, because he's been living in Nigeria for forever. And so like one day I went to go see him and, and it was, I didn't go to go look for a job. I just actually was like, oh, you know, he was, you know, he was really, we emailed back and forth when I was in New York and he'd been really like open and, and generous with his time and his thoughts. And I really just went to like meet him and be like, thank you so much for, you know, everything that you've done just in terms of like helping me understand the lay of the land here. And so I went to go see him and, uh, as is kind of always the thing with my, all, every job I've had. What happened? You know, I, I just, we just had went and we had a really great conversation. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. And then at the end of it, he was like, do you want a job? I was like, I don't know anything about event marketing. He's like, it doesn't matter. Just come. You're smart. You'll learn. So my first job in Nigeria was in event marketing. And people were like, what is a strategist, right? <laughs> <laughs> what is a strategist? You don't know what that is. As I worked at CPMS for a year. And then because, you know, strategy in, in experiential then wasn't really a thing. And then there's a gentleman called George Thorpe, who is amazing and owns uh, a, a, one of the, the premier marketing groups in Nigeria. Um, and they were starting uh, production units. Uh, and he was like, will you come and, and run marketing? We, we wanted to kind of change the way that Nollywood works and change the way that content works and, you know, make different kinds of films and make different kinds of music and do things properly. And I was like, sounds great. And I went to what was then called small world media and that didn't really work out. But George was like, you know, because you came here because of me and it's not really working out, the business isn't doing well. So he seconded me to TBWA concept. Um, uh but they already had a head of strategy. So I, I went to work eh, kind of new business, kind of client service. It's not really my thing. So I was a TBWA for a while and that was great. They were an ama amazing group of people, but you know, I'm a strategist, right? I'm not a client service person. Like I'm yeah. not, a, I just, I'm not, I don't like people enough. 
And then from, from there, I went to high TV. It was a, a pay TV platform that was going to take on DSTV. And I really, really loved the idea of that challenge. I remember when that came out. Right. It, but it, it was a great idea, but the business model was, uh, and I, you know, were quite, you know, I just, I'm a strategist. I need, you know, I, I think kind of in straight lines and, and high TV was a bunch of curves. <laughs> the founder of high TV was someone that I'd known for a very long time since I was a child, really. And I was like, you know, our personal relationship was more important to me than the job. When I said, you know, if I stay here, we will not continue to be friends. So let me leave. Oh. <laughs> so be friends. <laughs> and um, another childhood friend of mine was working at ZK Advertising at the time. He was a, a creative director and they didn't have a strategist. And they had a pitch. They were pitching, it was FCMB, I believe, at the time. And so he said, no, will, you know, will you come and, and help us with this pitch? And so I went and I helped them with the pitch um, and got to know the MD. And he said to me, just come work here. And so I did. And so I went to go work for ZK. And two, so between 2004 and 2007, I think I had like six jobs. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> um, but then I got to, to ZK in 2007. Uh, yeah. And then in 2011, Calico and I did a management buyout and uh, we became Miller Brick Road. You guys did a what? Sorry? A management buyout. We a, bought the agency. A ma- you bought the agency? Yeah. So, um, so ZK was, uh, it was actually amazing. It was a, uh, at the time, the only African-owned pan-African network, agency network. Um, but we only had, there was one client across the network was uh, Celtel and became Zane. But when Airtel bought Zane, there was an agency realignment and uh, ZK lost the business. Right. And the owner decided to sell up. Right. Sale in Nigeria wasn't really, a, wouldn't have been a good thing for, because the agency that was buying so to be to be fair, their management had actually reached out to me already. Yeah. Um, and had put me, but you know, I was like, look, I have these people here that are working for us. I I just it didn't the acquisition wasn't gonna be good for us. So Cal and and I was actually gonna go just get another job. I never thought of myself as someone who's gonna own a business. It was I was like, I don't want that kind of stress. I'm like, I'm a late, I'm just essentially lazy. And also, what do I know about running a business? But uh the MD at the time, who is now my partner, was just like, we should do this, right? We have all these ideas about what we would do if the agency was ours. We should just do it. You and see. I really was not, I was not on board, right? Because I just, like, I don't know anything about running a business. I mean, I was like, you know, voted least likely to do anything useful. Oh. Right? But, you know, I was, and I was talking, but I was talking to my, my oldest sister, my big sister. And I was just like, I don't know. And she was like, what is the worst that could happen? Like literally, she was like, first of all, she's like, first you work like it's your own already. So it's not, you know, you're already as invested as you would be if it was actually yours. Mm-hmm. And secondly, the worst thing that can happen is that you will fail, right? That's the worst that can happen. But nobody will die if you fail. If it all like ends up in tears and blood, Nobody will die and you will just have management experience on your your resume and you will always be able to find a job, right? You've been doing this long enough and you're good enough at it that you will always be someone that someone wants to hire. So just do it. I was like, all right, I guess, right? Because that's the thing. It's like, you know, when we have anxiety, we're always afraid of what can happen. And so now I'm like, what is the, I always ask myself, what's the worst thing that can happen? You will fail. And then. Um, yeah, so, so in 2010, we negotiated and went through everything. And in 2011, yeah, we rebranded the agency to Yellow Brick Road. Um, and, you know, Yellow Brick Road was born out of a crisis, right? Because the thing that instigated the sale of ZK was that we lost the at the then Zane business. And it was 70% of our income. Oh, And so we went from being 
one of the best paid agencies in Nigeria to like literally nobody. And it was a really, really long way to fall. Yeah. And it happened literally overnight. And it also wasn't because of anything that we'd done. Right. And so that was hard. Um, and, you know, look, people, people, people like to see you fall. Right. And so that first year of, of Yellow Brick Road is really hard. We pitched literally. When I think back now, I'm just like, Lord, we pitched. <laughs> like if you were opening a door, we would go pitch. Right. But we, you know, slowly, literally inch by inch. I, I tell people all the time, like the first year I used to go home and cry every day because I was like, you know, we had one, we had to get rid of like a third of our staff, which is like awful. Um, and thankfully, I, I will I always, I will always love Calico because he didn't make me do it. Right. He did. He did. He did the hard things. I just went home and cried oh. <laughs> and he had to sit there and tell you know, like 25 people, right. That they couldn't, that they didn't have a job anymore. Um, but yeah, we just, we traded our way out of the hole every day. We just, you go home, you cry, you wake up in the morning, you wash your face, you go and you start again. Right. And one, you know, two years, three years, and you, you know, you look around and you have a business and it's working and it's working. And so, you know, I don't, like, I don't have like any, like, this big inspiring story about we had a dream and a vision. No, like literally <laughs> we were, we were in the trenches in a foxhole trying to protect ourselves and our staff from mortar fire. <laughs> that literally is it. <laughs> we battled every day and we still do. Right. I hope it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like the trenches anymore. Oh, it always feels like the trenches, but it was an inch. It's, but it's interesting, right? Because you know, when you, when you start a business, there is in the back of your mind an assumption that at some point the business will get to a point where it's stable and it will kind of run itself. That is not true. Running a business is kind of like being an adult, right? You essentially lurch from catastrophe to disaster with like periods of calm in between. And Running a business is really lonely because, and so I'm, I'm, I don't know, I don't understand people who do it without a partner because as much as, you know, we can drive each other crazy. Like I would literally not have survived the last 10 years without, without him. Um, a couple of years ago, um, I was invited by the, the Zambian marketing association to come and speak. And usually when I, you know, when I'm invited to speak, I speak about strategy, but they wanted me to come and talk about my journey as an entrepreneur, which is bizarre because I don't really think of myself as an entrepreneur. Like I know that I own a business, but I don't, I don't think of myself as a business owner. I know it's strange. I know. And I was, you know, nobody wants to hear about my journey because, you know, what I, I'm like, this was not, there was no plan. <laughs> we were just, this and this happened. it as we run along. My agency lost the business. <laughs> right. My agency lost the business. We were like, sure, why not? And it hasn't gone down in flames yet. Right. That's not a, that's not a great speech. Yeah. And so I went uh, and I interviewed other entrepreneurs and I interviewed, you know, people who had started incredibly successful businesses. Right. I, you know, I interviewed someone who started one of the now major banks in Nigeria um, but I also interviewed people whose businesses had failed. I interviewed people whose business businesses had just started and people who had been in business for like 30 years. And it was really comforting to realize because when, when you're running a business, what you see is other people's output, right? Yeah. And on the outside, it's like the duck principle. You see the duck gliding and you have no idea that it's paddling furiously underneath because you can't see its feet. And that's kind of what it is to be an entrepreneur. Everybody else seems to be coasting and you're just like, and I am just here sweating. And it, it can make you feel stupid, right? And it can make you feel incompetent because you're like, how am I still having the same, how am I still having the same struggles? Why are we still like dealing with the same issues after five, three, four, five, six years? And then I was interviewing uh, someone who has an incredibly successful agency group in Nigeria. And he said to me, look, 
right now, there is someone at Apple at their desk crying because something is on fire. Everybody struggles. Your business will never run on its own. Every day something will go wrong. That is what it is to own a business. And I realized in that moment that nobody knows what they're doing. Nobody. I don't care if it's Barack Obama. I don't care if it's Bangote. I don't care if it's Bill Gates. They do not know what they're doing. They wake up and they are figuring it out until they go to sleep. (laughs) And literally that nobody knows what they're doing and that's okay. It was just, it was so freeing for me because I know I'm just like, okay, it's okay to be figuring it out. That's it. So we are still in, because we're still figuring it out every day. You've come this far. So yeah. The figure or not has to be doing something, you know, I wanted to find out from you if have you, you know, past or present commissioned, say, um, an independent African creative person, you know, could be illustrator, pottery maker, someone who's probably just not your conventional um, script, uh, musician or a film director just to work on a piece or a client project just because you knew that bringing in this talent was necessary. Oh, all the time. So, you know, we, again, the answer is not always an ad, right? But we make ads that we know how to do. We're not, even though we have within, you know, one of the things that we talk about in hiring, right, is we want to hire uh, capacity plus, right? To an art director plus, you are a client service person plus. What is the additional skill that you have? It might be language, it might be. So we have, you know, in our creative department, we have a lot of painters. Uh, we have photographers, we have people that make clothes, make fashion. We have, uh, in our client service, uh, department, there's a girl that makes bags. Uh, so we, so we just generally like to hire people that have additional skills, but also, right. We collaborate with people to make film, right. To make art, to make music, to we, we once did a pitch, I'll never forget this. We did, a, we did this pitch to a, a, an oil and gas company. Um, and at the pitch, we had a spoken word artist come and perform one of the pieces that we wanted to, to share with them. Is that on video? Um, no, no. I wish it was. But it was, it, I thought it was, but it was, it was, you know, it was great. Like, you know, years and years ago, we were like, and we have this thing, it's really powerful, but we need someone that can deliver it properly. And so, you know, we were at the picture like, okay, we just, you know, give us a second. And we opened the door and brought in this dude and he came in and he performed and then left. And that's what won, that's what won us the pitch. You know, we, um, we, uh, we work a lot with First Bank and gosh, two, three years ago, they won, they were doing a, a, like a, their annual calendar. Right? It's not that exciting, but we found, um, this painter who I'd worked with very, very early in his career, who's really beautiful, like modern African, like contemporary African art. And he created 12 pieces, right? Mm-hmm. For that calendar. But they were actual pieces that now hang in their office, right? Um, we have, you know, we, we do community theater. I mean, we have a, a, a section of our, our business that's uh, it's YBR Impact. And it, we work in, in uh, solely on development uh, work, um, social, uh, behavior change, social behavior change. And so we have worked with playwrights because we do community theater. Um, we have pitched film ideas. We once pitched an idea to do branding on pure water sachets, right? So we are... Okay. Because like we, 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 it was, oh gosh, it was this thing and we wanted to... Uh, to have cold, uh, to give out pure water and then have a message on the back, um, which is not super ecologically friendly, but would have just gotten us mass reach. Uh, sure. So we did a small pilot of it. The client didn't roll it out, but you know, but it, but the one we did, the little thing that we did was actually really impactful. But the client was like, I don't know if we, I want my brand on pure water. <laughs> um, so yeah, so we are always, we are always 
looking for collaborators, whether it's in technology, whether it's in, you know, the visual arts, whether it's in, in, in sound, because again, you just want to find what is the thing that's going to connect to your audience to get them to listen. Cause that's a big thing, right? Yeah. We live in, in an incredibly competitive com- attention economy, right? Attention is now like the scarcest resource. And so, you, you know, I tell my guys all the time, you've got three seconds before your customer moves on. And so whatever it is that's going to get me to like five, six, 10 seconds, I'm going to do. And I'm going to find the person who can do it best. And if that person, you know, makes sculptures out of Lego, then that's it. (laughs) (laughs) That's the approach. You know, that is that is really the approach. And you touched upon this idea of collaboration, Um, you know, in the past uh, when we spoke of this particular recording and you you said that, you know, you knew someone who ran a creative business or creative agency and all their clients came from outside Nigeria. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that at least that this podcast is trying to really draw out is the idea of international collaboration in Africa Mm -hmm. with the creative industry. And that includes both, you know, independent artists and the agencies that work in it. Is this sort of system where, you know, all your clients are from outside? Is that something that's pretty common from your perspective in the ad, in- ad industry or creative industry right now in, in Africa and Nigeria, or is it just more, you know, a few people have all their business from a- abroad, but you know, most of us have to deal with the local market. Um, I think most people in any country will have primarily domestic clients because that's the country that you're in, right? Yeah. Anywhere in the, in, in Ireland. 70% of the businesses in Ireland are Irish, right? Yeah. Um, so the bulk of your clients are always going to be from where you are because that's where you are. And that's, those are the businesses that are selling to the customers who are in the markets, right? Yeah. So whether they're a, a, a multinational or not, the vast majority of people pushing products and services in Nigeria are Nigerian selling to Nigerians. So that's always going to be, I think, everywhere in the world, the bulk of your markets, just because that's how things go. People buy the things that are there, right? Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, the, the person that I'm talking about, she's a, she's, she works in, a digital, in the digital space where geography is less important. And so I think that as you get into, if you have a non- physical product, right? If you are just selling ideas or services that don't require like physical proximity, then yes, it's possible. But if you're selling soup, <laughs> yeah. you're not selling soap in Nigeria from Azerbaijan. <laughs> you're <laughs> selling soap from Nigeria in Nigeria, to Nigerians in Nigeria. Um, so I think that the geography is, and the importance of geography and proximity is also a function of what it is that you're selling. If it's a physical product, you know, it kind of got to be there. Yeah, of course. If it's not physical, then, you know, man, from anywhere now. So do you think that there's something to be said about, I, you know, say, for example, I'm a creative person. I want to sell my illustrations and I want to do editorial illustrations for some publication in Ireland, but I'm in Nigeria, or I'm a a Nigerian small agency of five, and we would really like to get international clients just to peddle our services too. But, you know, we're in Nigeria, we can't reach Irish clients. Now, the Mm -hmm. buyers involved, you know, going through the agencies, as far as you know it, is this something that has a good chance of happening? outsider brand wants to sell something and they get a Nigerian illustrator or agency to do it. Or, you know, outsider brand wants to sell something in Nigeria and they hire sort of someone who's based 
sort of outside Nigeria, but also creative from Nigeria to do it. Is this something internationally that we could do or has potential to happen? No, look, absolutely. I think, you know, sort of going, going back to the idea of at an executional level, I think if you are creating like illustrations or music or you're a director, right? Yeah. You can work anywhere because what you, because I think look, creativity travels, right? Yeah. Um, if you are, if you have a skill, that skill is applicable everywhere. You just have to understand the audience enough to produce something that works for them. So, you know, we work in, you know, when we shoot ads, we work with directors from all over the world. One of my favorite directors is Portuguese. He's not Nigerian, but he has a really, he has a great eye. Right. And I, and I like the I like the, the way that he tells stories, but he's Portuguese. He's That's Nigerian. interesting. But he doesn't, but he doesn't write scripts for Nigeria. He doesn't know the market enough, but he, he can take a script and make it, make that story beautiful. You know, there are people who, uh, you know, look, Nigerian, the Nigerian aesthetic. I mean, I, I know if you've seen the new Kelly, you've heard the new Kelly Rowland song. I mean, it's essentially a tribute to fella, <laughs> right? So, like literally horns and everything. So I think that look, skill and capacity travels, right? Talent is universal. What I think is important is, is it going to connect to your audience? And as long as it does that, it really doesn't matter where it's from. Um, across, I mean, you cannot go anywhere in this world, like literally anywhere and not hear Nigerian music. True. Like there's nowhere, like just like literally there's nowhere in the world that you go right now where you will not hear Nigerian music. There is nowhere where there are black people that you would not see Nigerian movies. Um, now, increasingly you see Nigerian or African-inspired fashion across the world. Yeah. Um, you're seeing, you know, an African aesthetic in comic books. I was, there, was a, there was an article in the New York Times from yesterday about, you know, Black uh, comic book makers and the retelling and the recasting of superheroes in our image, right? So, yes, as the world gets smaller, as people and you know, and, and everyone is always looking for new, interesting difference. And Africa is still unexplored in many ways. And so I think absolutely that our skilled craftsmen in whatever discipline, if you're really good at something and you can and you understand your audience enough to deliver something that works for them, absolutely. If you are an illustrator in Nigeria, you should be able to sell work to Japan or China or Tim, you know, Timbuktu. Because what matters, is it good and does it connect? Perhaps that's something that's a, a superpower for people who are African creatives. And do you make a really solid point? So we've talked a lot about your perspective and one of the things I'd just like and, you know, I, I close out with all of the time on all of these episodes is because we're talking about the African context and because I'm sneaky, I'd, I'd like to throw you a, a, a sort of two, two double questions uh, in one, uh, because I think it'll make for a more interesting ending. Um, so first thing is, what is it that you want to see from our creative industry that would help you do more creative work for your clients and added to that what's something that you can get in africa that you can't get anywhere else what i would like to see from our creative industry is even more courage 
I just think we must be brave. We must be brave enough to, to think beyond our borders, right? We have to be brave enough to say, actually, I don't have to move to America to do business there. Or I don't have, I don't have to go anywhere. I can do it from here because they want us. Because what you can't get anywhere else is the thing that makes us us, right? What you can't get outside Africa is Africa. There is in an energy and a vibe and a resourcefulness and an inventiveness. A lot of it because we have to find ways through, over, under, right? Around. Yeah. We got to make, like, look, I remember, you know, years and years ago when I was still working in experiential um, and I used to make a joke about a dancing girl on truck, right? This sort of moving town storming thing that we do in Nigeria. Mm-hmm. And like one day I was, you know, I was sort of, and it's so common, right? And I was talking to uh, one of my old colleagues in New York. And I was, he was like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm just working on this like dancing girl on truck situation. He was like, what is that? I was like, oh, well, you know, you just, you know, it's like, it's a moving rig and you put, you know, a DJ and some people on it and you take it to like markets. And, and he was like, yo, that is so dope. I'm gonna do that. Right? And they did like this whole summer promotion for, I forget which brand it was, where they did Fancy Girl on Truck. And it was super innovative in America because nobody had thought to put, you know, hot young girls on a rig and drive around town. <laughs> so there are things that we do that seem every day kind of pedestrian to us. Yeah. That other people are like, oh, that's so hot. Right. Yeah. And I think for me, so when I talk about being brave, it's for us to lean into that and really believe that we are, we're better than them. That's what I want us to believe. In other words, good at, we're better. Right. And to, to continue to tell our stories, to continue to put forward our vision, because, you know, so this is my first time really spending time in Kotonou. And, you know, it's literally it's like it's like two hours away from Nigeria, right? Yeah. But it's so different. And you drive another four hours, you're in another country, and it's different. And that's what we have to lean into. That's what we have to lean into. That's what I want, is for us to celebrate ourselves and just realize that, look, the world is looking to us now because I mean, look, the West is tired. Right? Yeah. They're, they run out of stories. They yeah. run out of, of, of visuals. You know, this is why like, it feels like you can think about movies. Everything is a remake now. Yeah. We still have so many stories to tell. Um, and there is an energy on this continent. There is a resourcefulness. There is an inventiveness. There's just a straight hustle that you just don't find anywhere else. Yes. And, and yeah, I, I think yeah, what, what, what you can find in Africa that you can't find anywhere else is Africa. It's our superpower. Africa is our superpower. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Nena, for coming on the show. There is honestly a real chance that I might ask you to come back because I think there's still a lot that we haven't unpacked, especially from an abstract point of view. But I am so glad that I've been able to get your experience and your perspective on the state that we find ourselves in the African creative state because as we close out this season, it's just been one lesson after the other. And we went from learning about communality to the trials of the African struggle and really understanding with you that there are places we can go that we haven't explored yet. And I am grateful for you to be the final guest on our season. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Like, you know, so this is, like I said, this is my first podcast. So thank you for that. Um, and, you know, 
as you know, I was worried that I wouldn't be an interesting guest. So, <laughs> so I'm glad that you're not like, oh my God, she was so boring. Um, no. And you know, the class, and thank you for doing this. I think we have to talk more about the things that we do. Yeah. And we need to share more our struggles and our solutions. I think that we need to inspire ourselves. Um, and which is why I'm really excited about the work that you're doing, which is just one, allowing people to understand the opportunity and the possibilities that are open to them. Um, and so I guess if I will leave, I guess, with any last thought, it's, you know, for, for if you are an African creative, whether you're on the continent or in the diaspora, is to, to really lean into your dreams and go boldly in the direction of your ambitions because who you are and where you're from is the thing that makes you powerful, right? You are not great in spite of it. You are great because of it. Um, yeah, that's that's what I would... Thank if you. I'm going to end with anything, that would be it. That's a really beautiful note to end on. And uh, where can we find more of your awesomeness on the internet? <laughs> um, so you can find me on Instagram at the Barefoot Strategist. You can find me on LinkedIn at Nano Nyochi. Um And I'm on Twitter, but I'm not really on Twitter. So Instagram is probably the best place to find me right now. And then obviously also yellowbrickroad.com.ng is uh, the agency website. Thank you so much. This has been the Bantu Podcast, episode five of season one, our season finale. And it is me and Nenna Onyewichi will be back, but at a later date. You've been listening to Nenna of Yellow Brick Road. Please follow her to stay up to date with her appearances and her agency. This was our season one finale episode of Bantu, the African Creative Podcast. This episode was written and produced by me, Adesunji Paul, executive producer, Blessing Usoro. Our music this week was produced by Arie Nati and Odds Music. Hire by Thames was written and performed by Thames and produced by Audio Tribe. Bantu, the African Creative Podcast is a production of Studio Black. We're on Instagram at Studio BLVCK, on Twitter at Studio BLVCK underscore, and our website is StudioBLVCK.com. Be sure to sign up for updates on the next season of Bantu, the African Creative Podcast. We will be taking a break until early next year, and then we'll be back with more African creative magic for you, our dear listeners. Thank you once again, and goodbye from Africa. <laughs>